Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Hashtag Clocked In with me, your host, Jordan Edwards. I'm thrilled to have you tune in as we dive into the dynamic world of productivity, success, and stories of incredible individuals who've mastered the art of getting things done. Whether you're commuting, hitting the gym, or just relaxing at home, this podcast is the go-to source for inspiration and actionable tips to level up your productivity game. I'm on a mission to unravel the secrets of those who seem to effortlessly manage their time and achieve their goals. So if you're ready to clock in and unlock your full potential, you're in the right place. We've got a lineup of amazing guests, industry experts, and thought leaders who will share their insights and strategies to help us crush your to-do list and make the most out of every moment. Get ready to get inspired, motivated, and equipped with the tools you need to supercharge your productivity. This is Hashtag Clocked In with Jordan Edwards. Let's dive in. What's up? It's Clocked In with Jordan Edwards here. Hey, what's going on, guys? We're here with Aaron Hale. Aaron, after serving 14 years in both the Navy as a chief, as a chef to the commander of the U.S. Sixth Fleet, then transitioned on to becoming an Army team leader on one of the most, on the military's most dangerous jobs, explosive ordnance disposal, EOD. Staff Sergeant Aaron Hall was, Aaron Hale was blinded by the IED, not letting his injuries hold him back, though. Aaron became an EOD instructor, motivational speaker, mountain climber, whitewater kayaker, and marathon runner. Four years later, after, four years later, tragically struck again when Aaron contracted bacterial meningitis, which robbed him of his hearing, leaving him not just 100% blind, but completely deaf as well. Again, Aaron picked himself up, dusted off, and continue to chase the best of what life has to offer. Today, he's back speaking and sharing his story, running marathons. He's a proud husband and father of a nine-year-old son and a recent addition of Identical Twins. He runs a thriving chocolate company with his wife and recently completed his first 100-mile ultra marathon. Welcome, Aaron, to the Clocked In Podcast. We're happy to have you. Thanks so much. I appreciate that. Thank you, Jordan. Yeah, we're happy to have you. So, Aaron, where did this all start? You ran a 100-mile marathon, ultra marathon. You you have a, a crazy company that's doing really, really well. You're hiking 14ers. Where did this drive come from? Uh, tough to pinpoint exactly uh, when the transition happened. Uh, however, I... Yeah, it would before um, before the injury. I was kind of cruising along. I uh, had just enough natural ability and talent to not have to put a whole lot of effort into anything, which also meant I didn't have a whole lot of uh, ambition or you know locked in goals. Which meant I wasn't going to. Uh, I was pretty much allowed myself to become mediocre, and that actually was pretty depressing. Um, so I joined, uh, you know, the military, and it gave me you know, a set of uh, values, discipline, 
uh, it taught me, you know, the value of hard work and being part of something bigger than myself and, and definitely facing uh, newer and, and tougher challenges each time, not, not sitting back and, uh, you know, just staring in the rearview mirror of my past accomplishments, but constantly moving forward. So when I, uh, when I was injured, I faced that uh, decision point where I could feel sorry for myself and just kind of sit back on what it, it just worry about what I'd lost, what I couldn't do anymore, what wasn't possible, and sink back into this, this you know self you know pity uh, spiral, or I could you know I could pick up, I could move forward, I could assess what. Uh, the situation was and account for what I still had and what tools and, and, and skills and, and, and the people I had around me and, and do what I can and, and move forward. Definitely. That, that's, that's great to hear because I think there's a lot of people at this point who do have, maybe not something traumatic has happened, but People do have difficulty in life all the time, and you have to make a choice. Do you want to regress or progress? So let, let's <clears throat> let's dive into how did you get into the military, and then why why join the the bomb squad? Uh, well, I'm first uh, after, like I said, after after high school. You know, I had enough natural ability to really not have to put much effort into stuff. Uh, I was pretty good at a whole bunch of things and not exceptional in many. Um, I went to uh, college and I went looking for Animal House. I went for a great time and to party and pretty much forgot where my classes were. Uh, it wasn't, didn't take too long to gain the freshman 50. And um, if they give negative GPAs, that's what I had. So uh, pretty soon I found myself uh, out of school. It was a mutual thing. I didn't really want to go back and school didn't really want me there. So um, I had to figure out what I was going to do with my life. It was, it was pretty embarrassing. Uh, it was a very embarrassing uh, way to leave school. So I needed to turn myself around. I needed to find that direction. Um, and I did that by joining the military. Now, I love cooking. I've been cooking since I could reach over the counter. So it was, it was a passion and a hobby for me. And I thought, why don't I turn that into a career? And since I wanted to go back to, I wanted to go to culinary school, I wanted to get that GI Bill, and I joined the military. And I joined the Navy, found myself pretty soon uh, a station in Italy where I spent four years and part of that time, I was cooking for uh, the Admiral of the Sixth Fleet. Uh, and I was working and living in Italy, traveling around the Mediterranean with, uh, uh, with uh, the, the flagship, uh, pulling into foreign ports and running up the flag and throwing receptions for foreign dignitaries and royalty. And, and even in my off time, I would, I would take vacation uh, leave time and I'd go travel around places like going to Munich for Oktoberfest or uh, 
Paris for Valentine's Day, stuff like that. It was, it was an amazing time in my life. Uh, that's how I got started in the military. And while, um, while it was an incredible time, uh, lots of learning, lots of uh, exploration uh, over in Europe and uh, just an, an incredible experience, hardship duty it was not. And by about 2004, both wars were in full swing. And I was, I, was, I was in the military, but I was watching the war on CNN. And, you know, I'd actually witnessed the 9-11 attacks happen on CNN from my office uh, in, in, um, in Naples, Italy. And I just, there was something that drew me into a more direct and more kinetic um, service. So I volunteered to go to Afghanistan where, as a cook, I ran an army chow hall. And I went from cooking for the admiral and about 35 of his top brass uh, to cooking for uh, three, four, five, six hundred NATO troops. Americans and Italians and uh, Portuguese and Spanish uh, that will come through my chow hall. And uh, it was definitely a pivot point. But that's where I met some EOD technicians, explosive ordnance disposal. And they're the military's bomb squad. Uh, They're the ones that handle anything that explodes from bullets to roadside bombs to uh, nuclear weapons and weapons of uh, mass destruction. All that stuff. So uh, I switched from the Navy to the Army, went EOD, and I became uh, a sergeant in the Army. I changed my uniform. I changed my job. And I soon found myself, um, uh, I was was deployed to Iraq in 2009. And then I found myself back in uh, Afghanistan, this time as an EOD team leader in 2011. Oh, yeah. How how often do people switch? uh, Like, I'm a civilian. I've never done anything in the military. But first off, thank you for your service. And then second, how do you – do people usually switch from the Navy to the Army? Uh, It happens. It happens uh, from time to time. Actually, pretty frequently. I knew a guy that – went from army to, or was, was it, he was in the, uh, the army to the Marines to uh, Air Force Reserves. Oh, wow. Uh, the, the Navy has a green to blue program, which takes in you know, Marines and army and uh, kind of converts them into the Navy. And the army's got the blue to green program. And it's it's a it's just a conversion without a break in service. Uh, so you know, it's 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 not unheard of. It's pretty frequent, in fact. But uh, uh, I, I loved both services, and it was interesting. Even though they're both military branches, they're completely different animals. Totally different jobs, different um, cultures. Uh, going from Navy to the Army, so that was. That was uh, was definitely an interesting switch. My first sergeant um, really got 
ticked off at me by answering everything he said with I, I. <laughs> so um, I had to get that out of my system. Yeah, you got to change some of the structures that worked in one, they don't work in the other. So when you got to um, the EOD team, what what's your thought process slash did you choose to go, you chose to go there because you felt like it would be impactful and so so what happened? Um, like I said, when I was uh, my first deployment, still as a as a cook in the Navy, I met these EOD guys, and it was one day they had uh, their big armored truck called a Jerv. Uh, it's a it's basically a big bomb squad truck, uh, and they had all of their equipment dumped out. Uh, on the, the side uh, by the side of the truck, and they were doing what's called PMCS or uh, maintenance checks. And so they had their bomb suits, their robots, uh, all this stuff kind of strewn out on the um, uh, in the parking lot as they were doing the, their maintenance. It was like a this was like a cool guy garage sale. Uh, so I went over, I started talking to these guys, and and I learned about the the tight-knit brotherhood, the, the, the important role that they play on the battlefield as, as first responders, as lifesavers. And, of course, the uh, technologically very challenging uh, job it is. Uh, so everything about it really uh, it, 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 it just uh, clicked. That was, that was what I wanted to do. So... Uh, when I got back to the United States and I did, made my switch from service to service and I, I went through the training, uh, my entire mindset was that I needed to be uh, the best at this. And I was actually starting from behind because many of these EOD techs, they come into the service uh, in, in the same branch uh, and they train from you know, from the beginning as privates, I was coming in, I did, uh, I kept my rank from the Navy to the army. So, but I went from petty officer to sergeant. Uh, but I kept that, that rank level. And what happens though, is that I was outranking some people with, uh, had more seniority as far as, uh, job experience in EOD. And I had to make sure that, if I was going to lead these, uh, you know, lead this very dangerous job and these these you know, incredible uh, you know teams, then I needed to be at the top of my game. So it was just a lot of training, a lot of study, and by the time I got to Afghanistan um, as a team leader, we had a pretty well oiled team and a well oiled machine. And it was, it was very necessary because we were busy. Uh, over the course of the next eight months or so of a one-year rotation to Afghanistan, we were sent to a place called, um, it was in the Kandahar province. It's called the Zaray district, which is the birthplace of the Taliban. And uh, the, the, the Russians actually called it the heart of darkness. And we were in a little little town in a command outpost, a cup. The town was called Siachoy. And I asked one of my translators what that means. He says, it kind of means cemetery. I thought, oh, great. We're in Tombstone. 
So uh, it, it kind of felt like that. It was like the Wild West, but instead of everybody uh, shooting the place up, there was just IEDs everywhere, buried all over the place. You never knew where you were going to step, uh, that if there was going to be an IED there. So, of course, we were very busy. And how, how did that process... Obviously, you knew the dangers of everything, but what were the mechanisms that you guys used to cover, to protect yourselves with the IEDs? Well, there's uh, no safe IED operation. Working with explosives, there's always uh, inherent danger. And... uh, while the bomb suit itself can uh, withstand quite a blast. In fact, I think the, the uh, president of the company that, that makes the bomb suits has um, actually demonstrated uh, its uh, viability by putting it on himself and surviving at something like seven blasts. Um, but... Uh, the, the the biggest safety measure we take is by knowing the trade as best we can, uh, knowing the science uh, behind the inner workings of these explosives, and, and and keeping our heads on a swivel, paying attention to the situation around uh, us, and just being the, the best at what we uh, what we we were sent there to do. Yeah. So what 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 happened that one day? Um, uh, we, like I said, we were very busy, um, but eight months into the rotation, uh, I was actually just coming back off of two weeks of R and R every service member that, um, gets, uh, gets deployed. If they spend 12 months or longer in, um, the battlefield on the battlefield, they're actually required to be sent on two weeks of R and R. So they get a vacation somewhere in the middle. Uh, mine was in November of that year. And I was just coming back. I'd uh, gotten to see my first son, term one. I got to uh, see my whole family. We had a nice little reunion and a great big Thanksgiving, which the holidays are, are very special to me, as uh, you'll, I'll tell you in a little bit. But uh, uh, and I also got to witness my dad, my son's grandfather, dress up like Mickey Mouse for his birthday, uh, which you know, knowing my dad is a once in a lifetime thing. So it was a great, it was a great uh, last page in the photo album. Uh, but I'd uh, gotten picked up at the airfield by my team, threw my bags into the back of our Jerv, uh, our armored truck, and we entered. We joined a convoy heading out towards. See a choy. Along the way, the convoy commander, the lead truck, calls back to uh, to us and says, uh, "You know, the Afghan police have uh, called up. Uh, there's, a, there's a there's a device, uh, something an IED, suspected IED, uh, in the road up ahead. So we're going to set a cordon. Can you get to work on this?" So they and I said, "Of course. Well, you know, no time like the present." So we, uh, uh, they set a security uh, cordon around the IED, and we set our safe area, and I knocked the 
my luggage off the robot, the robot out of the truck, and we got to work. The robot discovered what we've been uh, working on, we've been discovering for the last eight months. Most of what we were seeing was just a you know, plastic uh, oil, like a vegetable oil jug full of homemade explosive and a 9-volt battery connected to a pressure plate, just two pieces of plywood with some lamp cord. That's it. It's so simple. Uh, but it was, it was those the, the very simple IEDs that were getting so many of our uh, troops injured and killed. It was what was working. So they stuck with that. Uh, this one had been found. That was good. So uh, the robot was able to pull the pressure plate and just yank it free from the rest of the device, uh, rend- essentially rendering it safe. Uh, you know, it wouldn't be able to be functioned. But it couldn't get the, the, the jug, the heavy jug of explosive out of the hard-packed dirt. And part of my job, uh, besides just getting these IEDs off the battlefield safely, was also, if I can do it safely, uh, collecting evidence so it can be sent up for, uh, to our task force. And our task force is actually comprised of um, military intelligence, um, FBI, ATF, CIA, um, and all of those you know, alphabet soup type people to study these things and to catch the um, catch the bomb makers, the, the financiers, all that kind of stuff. And if I could do that, then we we could take the battle to them instead of just playing defense. So uh, I jumped out of the truck and I started making my way with uh, my uh, metal detector and evidence kit up to the IED on about 20 or 30 meters from the original device. A secondary device was still buried. And before I knew it was happening, I'd gotten punted into the air and landed on my knees and elbows. I was still conscious, but the blast had rung my bow and the lights had gone completely out. I was in pitch darkness. I'd thought that my helmet had been pushed over my face, and that's why I couldn't say. But the first thing I was I needed to do was like a functions check. So I wiggled the fingers and the uh, toes and moved the elbows and knees and all that, and everything seemed to be in working order. So I reached up to fix my helmet, and I patted the top of my head to find that the helmet was completely gone. And that's oh, when wow. I thought, that's when I, that's when I thought, oh no, this is this is bad. The army's going to want that back. Uh, it's, it's funny what goes through your head uh, at certain times. But uh, um, I realized that something was seriously wrong. Um, but I would, I, military training uh, really d- d- kicked in. And before I could worry about my situation, I uh, had to worry about the actual situation on, on the ground there. What, was, what else was going on? Was there going to be um, an ambush, uh, a coordinated attack, a, a attack after the blast, which happens a lot? Uh, where was my team? Uh, was the, what was going to happen? And, and that's, that's what I was thinking. So um, normally when an EOD team leader goes, goes down like this, the uh, team members, the other EOD team members, clear a safe path right to me, uh, or the team leader, 
to get them out so the medics can can check them out. I didn't want anybody else coming into the danger area, uh, so the blast radius. Uh, so I started walking towards the truck, but officially doing my first zombie walk because I couldn't see. And, um, of course, because of the blast, I had no idea where the truck was anymore. So I'm just wandering around the, the battlefield. Uh, of course, my team finally, you know, they came up, they grabbed me, dragged me uh, to the safety of my truck. And the medics had called in a medevac. Within 14 minutes of the blast, I was in the air heading back to Kandahar, where I just left. And within 48 hours, I was at Walter Reed. Where is that? Where is that? Is that back that in the was, U.S.? That was uh, December 8th, 2011. Okay. And when you, when you say in 48 hours you went to Walter Riggs, what, where is that? Walter Riggs in Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, oh, so you literally went on the plane to Maryland, Maryland to Afghanistan. Well, I was in Afghanistan. I went to Kandahar, and from there, uh, I I spent about uh, just a few hours before they put me on a uh, medical flight to Landstuhl, Germany, where we have a big military uh, uh, hospital. And Landstuhl is pretty much where all of our wounded uh, go, primarily uh, off the battlefield. I uh, spent about 24 hours in Landstuhl just because the blast had hit me uh, almost entirely uh, above the neck. It, it hit me, the blast just hit me in, in the head. And there was, I was virtually untouched, uh, shoulders down. Um, but because the blast had taken both my eyes, had blown out both my eardrums, uh, and left it actually cracked my skull, so I was I was leaking spinal fluid right out of my nose. Uh, and so then there was some TBI. So I they kept me for about twenty four hours just to uh, ensure you know there wasn't too much swelling and I could survive the the long flight across the Atlantic. So uh, well. 48 hours uh, is actually an incredibly uh, quick turnaround time from the battlefield to make it back to um, our medical uh, facilities in the United States. I probably could have made it quicker. They just wanted to do it safely. Yeah. And, and what's going through your head at this time? Are, are you even thinking? Are you Like I understand in the moment you were thinking about your team and the military training, but as you were – getting medevaced and you're realizing you don't have your vision. Like what are your, what are your thoughts? Well, um, of course, during uh, this, this uh, first, these first hours and days, uh, I mean, I was, I was knocked pretty silly, but uh, um, yeah, of course uh, the, the men and our, my family have pretty hard heads. So the blessed could have hit me in a better place, but um, I also wasn't, wasn't really thinking about the future. I wasn't thinking much about myself. Uh, I was just trying to figure out what was going to, you know, what the next few hours had in store for me. Would, uh, um, 
you know, how was I, how was I going to make it to the bathroom? How was I going, what, what were the nurses going to, when, when were the nurses going to come back and, and, you know, take these bandages off or change, you know, I, I was thinking about the most immediate things. When I finally got to Walter Reed and my family showed up at the hospital, um, it started to sink in. I mean, there was still uh, just a whirlwind of medical professionals, uh, uh, doctors and nurses that were coming and going. They took great care of me and there were multiple surgeries. I mean, I was, I was digging gravel out of my uh, gums uh, and um, they tried to save one of my eyes, but uh, just it wasn't going to happen. So after the... The dust started to settle, so to speak. Uh, I really started to think, and literally, my, my you know my brain started working a little bit better. And I was, uh, I was thinking, you know, why, why me? I, I train hard. Uh, I wanted to be. I I was trying to be, you know, you know the best. Uh, soldier the best eod team leader i possibly could be and i got uh i lost to a low tech uh you know coward's um hidden device and uh i was i was feeling uh, ashamed and embarrassed i was angry at myself i was angry at the situation and it's just not how uh, I'm programmed. And I felt it. It felt wrong to have, have these feelings uh, or at least to linger on them. Uh, it's natural to have them, but I just couldn't stay in that situation. Uh, I, I use this, uh, it was like a, I use this metaphor. Uh, it's actually my job in EOD. Uh, we'd normally have a three-person team, uh, a team leader and a couple team members. And each one of these teams is given a huge, like a shipping container full of tools from bomb suits to chemical um, uh, uh, decontamination kits to robots, you name it. And... Uh, it all goes in the shipping container and it comes with us overseas to the battlefield. But then when we get to places like Iraq uh, or other uh, locations, we're given that, that armored truck and it's not as big as the shipping containers. We, we, we pack some of our most important tools, the tools we, we feel are going to be most, you know, most in need on the battlefield. And we pack that truck all the way to the top with as many things as we can fit and still work. Uh, but we got to leave some of those tools behind. And then when we got to Afghanistan, most of the places we were, uh, we were working and patrolling were goat trails, dirt, these dirt roads that couldn't fit uh, our armored trucks. So we all had to go dismounted or on foot. So now we got to pick a very few uh, remaining tools that we can load on our, our, in our rucksacks and carry on our backs. And we got to leave a whole lot of tools behind. And we can't worry about the tools we left behind. They're not going to do us any good when we're on patrol, when we're out there doing the job. We got to rely on our creativity, the tools we do have at uh, our disposal, and we got to rely on our team to, to have our backs. And now I'm, I'm sitting at the, uh, at the hospital bed 
have left a few tools behind on the battlefield. And I still have a job to do. I'm still a soldier. I'm still an EOD team leader and a sergeant. I'm still a husband, a father, a son, a brother. I have these these roles to play, these hats to wear, and I can't do it while I'm feeling sorry for myself. So when I just kind of faced the reality and said, if I'm going to be uh, a blind person for the rest of my life, I'm going to be the best damn blind person I can. And that was the end of those feelings, those thoughts, and I got to work. That... Uh, that's so inspirational to hear because there are so many listeners that are just, they have everything and they're just, they don't even realize it and they just take life for granted. And you're out here recognizing the importance of being a son, a father, an EOD team leader. There's people that rely on you and look up to you. And regardless of what you bring with you, you still have to be show that confidence and exert that everything's going to be all right. Um, even when you're not positive of the outcome, but you're going to deem the outcome in your own head. I love that. Um, you know, life can get difficult, will be difficult. In fact, for everyone at some point in time, uh, we all go through challenges. Uh, everybody's, difficulties everybody's challenges and hardships they're all different and we all experience them in different ways if we maintain this victim mentality where external forces um you know control our emotions and our reactions then we're always going to be a victim and we're not going to be able to accomplish our goals because you know, the, the winds of change and, you know, the forces, the hand of fate, uh, will, will keep us, uh, from those, those goals. I instead choose to control my own fate, be the captain of my, my destiny. And, um, no matter what hardships come, no matter what difficulties, they're all just opportunities to grow, to change, to become stronger. They're all challenges that I can, I can add to my list of accomplishments. So that's why I started seeking out new ways to become a better me, even after losing my eyesight. I went back to uh, the EOD schoolhouse and I became an instructor. I started speaking. Uh, I started whitewater kayaking and uh, climbing mountains. I was actually to figure out, to help me figure out how I was going to accomplish all this, this, this stuff and find new challenges. I had to figure out how, uh, how uh, the blind person does these things. So I started, I use my, um, uh, so the software in my phone that does the text to speech and that's how I can use my computer and all that. And I was, I was getting onto the search engines and I was typing in blind plus, outdoors blind plus climbing whatever and uh, a few names kept coming up one was uh eric weinmeyer who is the first i think still the only blind person to ever climb mount everest and uh uh so i wanted to if he can climb mount everest i mean i can climb mountains too 
a pretty pretty strong guy, and and he found a way to do it blind. So I actually sought him out, and I went mountain climbing with him. I actually oh, joined wow. an actually joined it an all wounded uh, veteran team with Eric uh, on a eighteen thousand foot peak in the Peruvian Andes. Uh, and that just kind of became the catalyst for everything else. Now, it's, while it's hard to find a good mountain to train on while living in Florida, I started running to stay to stay fit. And I'd spent uh, you know weeks and, and months in a hospital bed, and uh, as uh, unappetizing as hospital food is, I'd gained a few more pounds. Um, so I started running, and I. Uh, I found another uh, army, another soldier who was still active duty, and he was completely blind, a ranger. And he told me he, uh, he always made it a point every year to run the Air Force Marathon, the Army 10-miler, and the Marine Corps Marathon. And I thought, well, if he's running uh, marathons blind, I can do that too. And so I signed up for all three of those. And somehow, while training for those things, and I've never run a marathon in my life, I signed up for two marathons, an Army 10-miler, and then somehow I got talked into doing the San Antonio Rock and Roll Marathon and the close one, the Pensacola Marathon. I'd actually registered for four marathons and a 10-miler, all within a four-month window, uh, a four-month span. And you and, never ran before. <laughs> like, I mean, you ran, but you didn't run, run. Well, I mean, I'd, I'd run, you know, a few miles every day with my team as part of my army training, but I'd never run a marathon in my life. Yeah, exactly. If I, other people were doing it, I'm sure I could do it. Why not? Exactly, exactly. The reason I bring that up is because I ran the Lake Tahoe one last year in October. And it was one of the most challenging things I've ever done. And you're out here signing up for four marathons before you fully trained, which is committing and you burn the bridges. You're not going to not do that activity. You're going to get it done. So how did you train for these marathons? Well, uh, you can't just, when you're, when you're blind, you can't just uh, step out the front door and go for a jog. No, it's not safe. Um, so I found running partners and what we would do is I'd take a, a tether and actually for the longest time was using one of those dog tug of war ropes that has a knot on each end. Yeah. So my partner would hold one knot, I'd hold the other knot and I'd get all my cues uh, on direction and pace and all that from where the rope was going. And my partner would also, uh, my guide would also uh, just talk to me to, uh, you know, it's, it's nice when they mention there's a curb or a speed bump or an open manhole cover. Uh, so, and that's, that's just we'd step off. And you know, the thing is, it takes uh, an incredible amount of trust to go running uh, into traffic uh, when you can't see. Uh, so I place a lot of trust in my guide. And it's the same when kayaking or mountain climbing. You know, you're on the side of some of these precipices uh, and, and, and you know, rock, uh, you know, boulder fields, and it's it's dangerous 
sometimes for people who can see. It's dangerous for everybody. So you gotta you take precautions and you gotta you trust in your team. And it, it's something um, that I you know became very comfortable with while serving in the military because you you place each, you know each other's lives in the, your teammates' hands and. Uh, you know, there. That's that's just kind of how you get get from uh, the hospital bed to you know finding new challenges. You you find a great team and you trust and you you step off. You get going. So diving into that a little bit more, how do you know someone? I guess the way I'd ask it is. When you were in the military, you were vetting people based on if they went through the military and then they join your team and you have a good team. But after you're, you went blind, how did you know – was there a way to check somebody? If How would you know if someone was going to be a good for your team and help you accomplish uh, the marathon or the three 14ers in one day? How, how would you know if the team was good? Well, at first, it, it it takes a certain person to uh, volunteer just to do it. Uh, so, and, and and frankly, if you know, say for example, uh, you're running a marathon, uh, it takes a lot of effort. Uh, it takes takes a certain amount of willpower just to make it twenty six point two miles. And uh, I wasn't doing it for time. I just wanted to get get across the finish. I wanted to say I'd accomplished it. Uh, uh, I've run marathons now with people that I'd only met that day, uh, so it it's just uh, it's more like birds of a feather type thing. Um, if you, we're both going the same direction, you mind holding onto this rope for me while we do it? And I make I make a new friend. We have a, a few hours together while we're just chatting it up. Uh, on the mountains, uh, we we train together. I uh, would go out to Colorado for a couple of training sessions and go do hikes with our team members before you know we we all gone together to Peru uh, and other uh, other locations. So it not only is it just uh, being part of a, a like minded group, being being among your peers. But then you train together and you, you work out those kinks and then you develop that trust. Yeah, so it's by being around each other and believing in one another. Yeah, I like that. And when you – so what happened when you were training for the 14ers and you were going to go to Kilimanjaro? Well, I'd been – Actually, I've been very successful in my, you know, these these goals, setting new challenges. I was feeling pretty good about life. I was I was I was riding pretty high for the next uh, three, almost four years since the explosion, and I'd just um just come back off a a speaking event. And I was I was just back from my flight, and I was. On the phone with a uh, uh, you know new new girlfriend uh, who it was a long distance relationship. She was living in California. I was in uh, Florida, but we we just had a fantastic uh, week long vacation together, 
And then I had to go on a speaking engagement and, um, uh, the, this was summer of 2015. Um, I'd had just an amazing year. 2014, I'd run those uh, four marathons. 2015, uh, those, those th- three of those four marathons qualified me for Boston. So I ran the Boston Marathon in 2015. I'd gone out to Colorado, and I'd climbed three 14,000-foot peaks in a day with a team that I was preparing uh, to go to Kilimanjaro and climb that with so we was training with this this new team all kind of strangers that all you know got together and wanted to go conquer Kilimanjaro so in you know one day we went out and we we climbed uh three 14ers out in Colorado I'd uh gone hunting I don't know if you can see the guy behind me there uh I went hunting in Texas and with uh, an army sniper uh, uh, with the help of an army sniper, he and, and I uh, went hunting, which was amazing because uh, he was just looking over my shoulder and helping me walk in like a laser scope. And I was through more teamwork, more trust. And I was able to go hunting. And uh, I'm going out to Montana where um I was meeting up with a, another friend of mine, another blind person and adventurer, Lonnie Bedwell, who is the first blind person to ever kayak the entire Grand Canyon. So we went out to the Yellowstone River and did some class three rapids uh, together. And uh, all of this in you know one summer in 2015. And so... I'm just off this flight from a uh, speaking engagement. I'm talking to my, my girlfriend on the phone and I drop my bags and I'm in my house and I just, I'm not feeling right. A little dizzy, uh, uh, extremely fatigued. I'm feeling kind of funny. So I told her I'm going to lay down for a nap. I don't know if it's just from the flies or you know everything that's been going on. I lay down and I don't know how long it was, five, 10 minutes, whatever. Uh, I woke up with the most uh, excruciating pain in my head. Uh, headache doesn't do it justice. Within moments, I knew that I had to call 911. And I get on, on the phone and the operator, you know, it says, state the nature of an emergency. And I said, and I was a little embarrassed. I said, ma'am, um, I have a terrible headache. <laughs> so to, uh, uh, you know, she was very professional. She said, on a scale of one to 10, how bad is the pain? And I said, ma'am, I've never felt a pain like this in my life. And I've literally been blown up before. <laughs> so she said, the ambulance is on its way. Uh, within um, moments, they were at the house and I was on my way back to the hospital. Uh, for the next four days, I wasn't lucid. Um, it was bacterial meningitis had actually crept up into the, the, the cracks in my skull and were trying very hard to destroy my brain and kill me. And almost, the bacteria almost succeeded. But um, I survived. I uh, spent a couple of weeks in the hospital. And uh, whether it was the bacteria itself or the heavy doses of uh, antibiotics, 
it had robbed me of what was left of my my hearing that the blast hadn't taken. So uh, I was going deaf while in the hospital, and you know the they wheeled me. You know the doctor was there and wheeled me into the office and and told me the bad news that I was going to be completely deaf to go with being completely blind. And I sat there for a moment and and I said to the doctor, so what you're telling me is I'm never going to have to pretend to pay attention ever again. (laughs) Uh, uh, Of course, you know, it wasn't all joking, but you know, it is, it's, it's a release valve. I I like to use humor. uh, I like to joke and, it's not like so much a defensive mechanism as it is um, that release valve pressure release. It, it seriously, it, it is. It's one of those things. Kind of, again, those uh, those awful thoughts creep in. And the why me's, the what ifs. I got out of the hospital and um, I'm totally blind, totally deaf. Uh, I actually also lost that inner ear sense of balance, my vestibular balance. So I couldn't even get back on my treadmill for a while. I was still in a um, uh, wheelchair. And then once I could get out of the wheelchair, uh, I, I mean, uh, even a light breeze would knock me right over. And I was sitting in the kitchen counter uh, thinking, you know, like my, my entire world ended at my fingertips. I was trapped in my body. And, you know, I was thinking, uh, you know, when have I paid my dues? When is, uh, you know, this soldier paid his fair share? You know, when is enough enough? Uh, but I couldn't, I couldn't sit in that, that feeling. Again, it didn't feel right to feel like that. And yeah. what's the what is the alternative to sit around and and feel sorry for myself? I mean, it is it's an awful place to be. It's a very lonely and and frustrating feeling to be trapped in your body. Yeah, that is so important, right there. What Aaron just said, because you have to think about it. He overcome being blind by running the marathons, taking a lot of action. So the key was that the action and the the ability of him set a goal and achieve it was what helped him overcome the blindness even after he's doing really 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 well he then has this meningitis where he goes deaf so now he's kind of having a setback but as you hear Aaron throughout when he's discussing he's always looking for the comeback how are we going to do it bigger so Aaron what happened what happened now how do you guys do it bigger um you know, you hit it uh, right on the head. Uh, it's action. It's getting up and doing, doing something, doing anything. Movement. Um, it's what is it, Newton's second law of kicking ass. You know, uh, an uh, object uh, at rest tends to stay at rest. And I didn't want to do that. Uh, I wanted to get moving. But it was how. So I, I did what anybody in my situation would do. Started a chocolate company. <laughs> and, uh, truth is, um, you know, it, it, it was it was coming up to the holidays, and Thanksgiving was right around the corner. 
I'd invited, uh, actually my, my girlfriend left, uh, California, came to Florida to, um, nurse me back to health and she stayed. She had, hadn't gone back. Uh, I, I, of course made her my wife, but, uh, uh, we decided we were going to throw an amazing Thanksgiving feast. I could still cook. I still remembered how to do all the necessary things and with some help finding, you know, uh, different uh, ingredients and that kind of stuff. I got busy making, preparing this feast. I started making desserts, you know, weeks in advance. I was making cookies and cakes and pies. I started making uh, batch after batch of fudge. And, you know, one after another, I'd just like throw nuts in there and spices. I'd go to the liquor cabinet, I'd dump a little there and, you know, a little there. And uh, my wife started noticing that I was doing one after another, just flavor after different flavor. And she has noticed uh, two things. One, there was something on my face that she hadn't seen in almost six months. And that was a smile. Uh, the other thing she noticed is that the, the fudge was actually piling up. There was more fudge than anybody could eat, uh, any family could eat in one, one holiday. So she started sneaking it out the front door. And I say sneaking, like you got to be real stealthy around a blind deaf guy. But um, she was giving away to neighbors, friends, and people started coming back to her and asking, uh, Can, I've, got a, I've got a birthday, I've got a... Um, um, baby shower. Can we we buy some of this fudge from you? And the you know the capitalist in me said, "Well, of course you may." Uh, and we started selling our fudge right out of our the home kitchen. Uh, also, in the meantime, um, you know, I lost my balance, but I still had to maintain my my fitness. I did get um, you know active again, so I took the the trekking poles that I used to climb mountains. And I was, uh, I'd had, I'd use those just to get to the, the mailbox and back. And then, uh, I was going down to the, the, the gate, uh, at the you know, end of the neighborhood and back. And then, uh, eventually I was getting my strength and some of my balance back and I could get on the treadmill, but you know, I just hit the quick start and it, it would start at half a mile an hour and I would just walk. And then I, do like one beep on the arrow, you know, the speed up button and then another one. And eventually, you know, holding on to that stability bar on the, um, uh, on the treadmill, I'd start jogging again. And eventually I was running. It felt like the, the world was trying to rip the rug out from under me, but I, I kept running. And, um, in 2016, almost a year after, uh, the meningitis, I ran my first marathon again. It was uh, my hometown of Akron, Ohio, and it was the week of my 20th high school reunion. And I finally got a PR and a sub four hour marathon. Uh, it, was, it was the hardest race I've ever run because, you know, the balance thing meant that I was working harder to do the 3D you know, the, 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 all keep myself balanced, which meant harder work for my, my muscles. Uh, so every step I took, it felt like I was, I was working three times as hard, but, uh, 
I qualified for Boston again. And in 2017, I ran Boston for the second time. Incredible. And I, I want everyone to note that Aaron's, the way they started their business was they were just, they didn't realize it at the time, but Aaron's wife was seeing if the market wanted it. And then they real by giving away a little bit for free, and then they realized that the market wants it. So Aaron said, let's double down. Let's build some fudge. Let's get it done. Let's get it going. And he took the bull by the horns. And that, that's what life's all about. You find the opportunity and you take it. And even accomplishing the marathons, like it's constantly doing a little bit of progress each day. And you'll eventually see the gains. I love it. That's it's absolutely true. Like I said, you, you got to get into motion. You got to do something. Even if it's those little steps, like just hit the quick start button and start taking what is that minimum, uh, most important next step. What, what can you do right now just to take, uh, uh, get a little forward progress and whatever goals you have, do it now. Definitely. Take action uh, right after you listen to this podcast. <laughs> so, so Aaron, how did the, uh, how did the ultra marathon come about? Well, um, you know, we were, uh, you know, cruising with, uh, the business, you know, building that, you know, we get, we got really busy, uh, to the point where we were doing, working, you know, 10, 12, 14 hour days, just cooking and cooking. Uh, and I needed, uh, of course that's, it's a lot of sugar intake too. But, <laughs> um, I, I started looking for other challenges. Um, one of my running partners had recently run the Badwater 135. It was a 135 mile, uh, ultra marathon across Death Valley. You actually start from the lowest point uh, in the United States, and you go to the Mount Whitney Basin. So you're at the, you climb some of, but not all of the uh, tallest point in the contiguous uh, 48. So besides running 135 miles through Death Valley, you're also doing a 20,000 foot cumulative gain, and I thought, well, I want to do that too. Uh, but you have to qualify for that by running, uh, I think it's 300-mile marathons. Um, and you should probably make them pretty hot marathons. So that's what I was going to do. Uh, I was going to start I was just another goal, another challenge. You get to the peak of one mountain, and you see the peak of another mountain from that vantage. And I'm like, okay, that's the one I'm going to climb next. And I'd actually signed up for a registered for the Keys Marathon. It's a hundred mile race from Key Largo to Key West. Uh, but uh, you know, COVID nineteen happened. Uh, the, the race was canceled, and I just I stayed at home and I kept running. Uh, I signed up for. I registered for a virtual race. It was uh, the great virtual race across Tennessee. And it's a thousand kilometer virtual point to point race across the entire state. Um, <clears throat> so I 
stayed at home while we were quarantining and I was running an average uh, half marathon every single day. Uh, and uh, at, uh, at the same time, I was looking for another, uh, you know, another race that I could actually do in person. And as it turns out, the Canal Corridor back in my hometown of Akron was uh, was still on. So uh, this, just this past July, I, I registered for that and ran it. Phenomenal. It's phenomenal. I love even through the adversity, he just got it done because he wanted to accomplish his goal. That's great. No, I think you know, it's, it's about never settling for past accomplishments. Uh, never sitting. It, it, it's like um, Ray Kroc uh, once said, you know, it, you're either in business, you're either green and growing or you're brown and dying. And uh, I, I think about that that metaphor in everything I do. I'm either growing, you know, getting stronger, running further, uh, climbing higher, you know, pushing uh, more with uh, our, our businesses, both um, the, uh, the, the chocolate business and we, you know, we're uh, real estate investors. Uh, and all these things, I'm always looking for you know, the next, uh, next way to improve. Grow and learn. Yeah, the expansion's always key. So, where can people buy your chocolate from? What, what's the website? Uh, uh, everybody can learn more about our, our story uh, and get in contact with us, and of course, buy some really delicious uh, fudge, fudge, and other candies at eodfudge.com. They can also follow us on all the big uh, social media platforms, uh, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, um, Instagram, and TikTok for as long as that's going to last at EOD Confections. Oh, love it. Love it. I just lost the follow. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm going to order some chocolate, send it to my parents, see if they like it. Um, but I highly recommend everyone does. Aaron's uh, a great guy to be around. He's inspiring so many people. And I, and also, he's a Sigma guy, too. Can't sleep on that. Um, but yeah, Aaron, I'm super grateful to have you on here uh, on the Clocked In podcast. And I think your story is really going to impact a lot of people. And I really hope you guys do reach out to Aaron and learn about his story. They have a, a video on their page, which is really what inspired me to have Aaron on the podcast. Um, he, he's a really funny guy and uh, definitely, definitely one of the better people in this world. Inspire, you're inspiring me and I know you're inspiring a lot of others. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. And I also want to remind uh, your listeners that if they'd like uh, for me to come speak at their event or their group, be more than happy. Please contact me through the website. Yeah, awesome. Get him on a speaking engagement, buy some chocolate at the same time. He does it all. Thank you for reaching the end of the podcast. For that, we'll give you a complimentary coaching session in the link below with Edwards Consulting. Hope to see you there and have a great day and keep clocking in. Thank you for reaching the end of the podcast. For that, 
We'll give you a complimentary coaching session in the link below with Edwards Consulting. Hope to see you there and have a great day and keep clocking in.